Welcome to Management 101, your home for learning about management and leadership in business. Now, here is your host, Max Winokur. Hello, and welcome back to Management 101. I am your host, Max Winokur. Thanks for joining me today. Today's episode, I'm going to talk through issues that I see a lot of managers face as they develop in their managerial careers. I'm calling the episode the most frustrating mistakes that managers make without realizing it. And what we'll go through today is five of the mistakes that I see managers make very often when managing their teams. These are things that I think are pretty easy to not see when you're committing these mistakes. And therefore, I thought it might be useful to talk through them a little bit because they're something that anybody could be doing and it's without intent hurting your team's ability to be successful. So the first mistake that I see managers make without realizing it is over-prescribing. Typically, a manager, when they get into a managerial role, it's because they've been promoted from a more junior role where they were what's called an individual contributor. The people who get promoted into management roles were high-performing individual contributors. They tend to be people who are go-getters, who can figure things out for themselves and largely operate without much guidance from their managers. If given a problem, they can both understand the problem, scope the solution, and implement the solution. When those same people become managers, what happens is they think that they will continue to understand both the problems that are arising in their team, the business problems, I should say, and the solutions required in order to solve those problems. This is the fatal mistake that a new manager will make. And oftentimes, without any correction, this is a mistake that managers will make indefinitely throughout their careers. When I, as a manager, prescribe a solution to someone on my team, it is very likely that I know less about the details of the problem than that person does. I might have more context on what's overall going on in the company. I might have more context on the team's priorities. But when it comes to specific problems, the person who's in your team is likely going to much better understand them because they're a lot closer to them. They're actually working on them, whereas you are now just managing people and doing a lot less work. People who you hire will tend to be more expert than you in something. That's why you hired them. You are a manager. You are a little bit more broad in your knowledge now. And the people in your team are going to be more deep in their knowledge base. So as you hire more people, inherently, you are going to know less and less than they do, partly because you're hiring people who are already experts in something, and partly because as they work on certain problems in the business, they're just going to know more about them than you because you're managing the team. And this is something I've seen happen many times throughout my own managerial career. And I would imagine that you probably recognize the same pattern in your own. Uh, I can think of one example from a team I was managing where I joined the team and uh, the goal was to increase the number of customers that we were interacting with in a given time period. So we saw that our customers tended to 
have better experiences with our company's product when they talk to someone first. And so we tried to figure out a way to have them talk to someone. And I had had an experience like this in a previous role where with Uber drivers, we were trying to figure out ways to get in contact with them so we could help them get onto the platform and start driving. So I thought I knew what I was talking about in this other context when I said, well, typically drivers were available during certain times of day. They typically preferred text message and not cold calls. When I got to this other company, I said the same thing. And someone in the team said, these are not drivers. I know this group of customers quite well, and they're going to respond a lot better to emails. And I thought that I knew better, which was a <laughs> bad mistake. And I said, let's try with texts first. And then later on, we tried the same initiative with emails, which is what this person on my team had recommended we do. And the initiative, the number of customers we ended up talking to was much higher when we contacted them via email. The lesson here was I might've been the more senior person. This person was literally reporting to me who recommended the emails instead of the texts, but that in no way meant that I knew more than that person did. And I should have better listened to what the folks on my team had to say and what they were coming up with as solutions and why before just making a unilateral decision. I think a better way to approach over-prescribing, quote unquote, as a manager is not to say, please do this thing. So I see this happen with founders a lot. Founders are more driven to make the business succeed than anyone. And they often came from a version of the company that was only a couple people where everyone did everything. Now the company is a hundred people and they're telling their VP of operations, you need to run your call center this way, or you need to incentivize your team members this way. That founder is telling someone who has a lot more experience than they do in operations or marketing or sales or whatever it is. They're saying, you need to do this thing. And what inevitably ends up happening is the initiative that the founder has requested ultimately doesn't pan out the way that that founder expected it to because the world has changed. Something is different about their business now than when they were running it alone. The systems in place are more complex. The teams are larger. The other thing is they have people under them who know a lot more than they do about any one thing. The head of marketing knows a lot more about marketing than the typical founder. That's not to say the founder did a bad job at marketing when the company was three people and everyone worked on some marketing stuff. Just means that now that the company's bigger, maybe it's 100, 200 people, that same founder still only has a basic knowledge of how marketing works. They hired someone, though, who has a deep knowledge of marketing. And whereas that founder maybe was able to go from zero to one in marketing, when they tell the head of marketing or the head of operations, go do this thing and think it'll take them from one to 100, they're wrong, or at least they're often wrong. What it's better to do as a founder or as any leader is to say, we have this problem. I'd like to see a plan to solve it rather than we have this problem. I want you to do this thing to solve it. Instead of saying, please implement this thing. It's please give me a plan to solve this problem. Then you are taking advantage of the skill set 
that you have hired onto your team rather than having them just be some sort of robot who is executing your vision and the specific things you tell them to do. That was problem one, over-prescribing. Problem two, overlooking performance issues. Lots of teams have a single person who seems to be closer to the leader, the manager, the founder than most others in the team. And that person gets special treatment. What I've seen happen many times in startups is there is someone who was maybe the founder's first hire. They were a really good hustler. They got a lot of stuff done. They knew the founder through thick and thin. They had the experience of going through the big problems of the company, all the pivots. And they were a bit of a yes person. The founder looked to them to execute things and that person executed them. Of course, when you're in the trenches with an employee for a long period of time, you develop a close relationship. There's definitely no problem with that. But as the team grows, sometimes that relationship can cause problems in the sense that it is significantly different from the relationships that that manager or leader or founder has with other members of their team. And when that occurs, it can create a perception that this individual who maybe was with the team a little bit longer or knew the manager or founder from a previous role is getting special treatment. Maybe they are not held to the same level of performance uh, standards as the rest of the team. Maybe they're lacking the necessary skills in this new version of the company in order to be successful, but for whatever reason, they're not getting upskilled or let go. Founders will often ignore this because they feel close to this person. I've seen this happen many times, and I've certainly fallen victim to it myself, where I, as a manager or I, as a leader, know one member of my team better than the others because maybe I knew them before we worked together, or I've been working together with them for a lot longer than I have others. Or maybe we just have matching personalities. When that happens, you have to be extra careful around how you treat that person because it is very easy to turn that into a slippery slope of, I know this person isn't performing quite as well as the others, but they're quote unquote, good for team chemistry, or they provide a lot of intangible value. What you don't realize is this is creating tension and resentment amongst the rest of your team. I recently worked with a client who had a few team members who had been with the founding members of the company since many years before the company grew to the size it is now. And I have no doubt that they were really good back in the day when the company was a lot smaller, when it was only 10 or 20 people and everyone did a little bit of everything and the requirements for success were simply working really hard and doing a bunch of stuff. But in the version of the company that was now 10, 20 times the size that had significantly more complexity to it, that had a lot of leaders that were hired, not from straight out of school or from very junior ranks of employees, but actually from senior levels at other companies. 
what ended up happening with these individuals is they seemed to lack a place. They were working on projects that weren't high priority, and it wasn't clear to a lot of the leaders why that was the case. They were asked by the founders or the uh, senior leaders to work on certain things behind the backs of other senior leaders. They often brought ideas to the table or solutions to the table that didn't really make sense given how the company now worked and how complex everything was. But for some reason, these people were not held accountable for this. They were not told that they were underperforming. They were not let go. And a lot of the other leaders in the company were really frustrated by this because they felt, one, these people are taking up headcount that could be utilized for much more skilled individuals who could deliver a lot more impact. But they were also gumming up the works. They were working on initiatives that directly clashed with work that other leaders were doing. And these other leaders had had a, a lot more experience in whatever initiative was being worked on than these individuals did. I don't know what ended up happening with these individuals, but I can tell you that while I was working with this client, there was very much an us versus them mentality that had developed where people saw these original employees as having special treatment from the founders only because they were friends and because they knew each other for a long time rather than because they were high performers. And because the founders chose not to address this problem, they lost out on a lot of successes and productivity and impact from the team that they could have had had they simply let these individuals go and overlooked or chose to set aside their own personal feelings about these individuals, or if they'd identified for these individuals a truly impactful area that they could be working on that wasn't going to clash with the other folks who they had hired. So I, I will say that overlooking performance issues, either because managers know the person or because you don't feel like dealing with it as a manager, those are always going to cause more problems in the long run than just ripping off the Band-Aid and taking action. The third mistake that managers make without realizing it is ignoring feedback. And I will take it a step further to say that it's also possible that managers are not inviting feedback at all. I can't think of a single company I've worked with where employees felt truly at liberty to speak their mind. I'm not sure that it's possible for that to occur because people will always have some amount of reticence providing negative feedback or problems to their superiors, biting the hand that feeds. But I do think that there is a gap between the ideal state or what is possible and where most companies are at. If you ask the average employee at almost any company, they would tell you, numerous problems about the company that they believe are not that hard to fix, that are really impactful to the company's performance, and that they are absolutely uncomfortable bringing up to their senior leaders. What are some ways that senior leaders make people uncomfortable with speaking their mind, with providing feedback? One is retaliation. And I'm not saying 
this person is giving me bad feedback and I'm going to fire them. That doesn't happen that often, or if it does, it's pretty blatant. It's a lot more subtle than that. It's people providing critical feedback and not getting the same opportunities for promotion. It's people who don't provide critical feedback and simply say yes, getting more opportunities, getting to be on the inside with senior leaders. Any individual is naturally going to prefer to interact with people who agree with them to some extent, who have the same values, who they consider to be loyal, trustworthy, who they consider to have the same approach as them. What that leads to without any checks and balances is naturally leaders will bring closer the people in their organization who are most in agreement with them the most often. It also means that without any sort of action, those same leaders will ostracize, maybe inadvertently, people who offer up critical feedback, who bring up problems rather than who just toe the line. And I don't think these managers are ill-intentioned. I think if you ask any of these managers, they'd probably say, I want the best outcome. And sometimes that's going to be an outcome that wasn't my idea uh, or was based on a problem someone else brought up that needed fixing or was a result of someone giving me feedback about my management style and I was stopping something from happening or making people feel uncomfortable. And I wish I hadn't because it could have made the company more successful if I had done this differently. But whether it's intentional or not is pretty irrelevant because the reality is that many managers are creating environments where people are uncomfortable speaking. Just saying you're open to feedback is not enough. I can't think of a manager I've worked with who said, no, I never want feedback. But I can think of a lot of managers who did not actually like the feedback they were receiving. I remember I had a manager who would ask for feedback. And when I gave them positive feedback, they would readily engage in it. They'd ask additional questions. They'd light up. But when I gave them constructive feedback around, hey, I think that you have the opportunity to be more present in meetings. I think you sometimes miss some of the context because you're on your computer and not paying full attention. They would just acknowledge it and end the conversation there. It would literally be the end of the meeting sometimes. And what I took that to mean, what I internalized that as was this person doesn't actually want the critical feedback. They're not celebrating it the same way they're celebrating the positive feedback. They're not inviting further conversation the same way that they do when I provide positive feedback. And so even though this person probably didn't intend to make me stop giving them critical feedback, I ultimately realized that they weren't taking any action on the feedback I was giving them. They did not seem interested in the feedback I was giving them and they weren't engaging in it. So I stopped providing it. And that was ultimately a loss for them because I had a unique perspective about their abilities as a leader that they of course didn't have because they were in their own shoes. If you as a leader are not actively soliciting feedback, creating a safe space for people, responding positively to that feedback and taking action and following up on it, you're leaving a lot of room for people to think that you don't actually want that feedback or that you are ignoring it and 
over time, what that will do is it will cause people to stop giving you that feedback. It gets a little more sinister than this, of course. There are some more blatant examples. I once worked at a company where people who gave too much critical feedback were ultimately fired. And there were other reasons given for that. But what the average employee saw was this person was bringing up issues that maybe that employee agreed with. And then over the course of a couple months, they were suddenly considered to be a low performer and then ultimately let go. What do you think that employee is going to do when they have critical feedback next time? Most employees are understandably going to care about their well-being and livelihood more than the success of the company. And so they're going to choose to withhold that feedback in the interest of keeping their jobs. The fourth mistake that managers unwittingly make is setting unrealistic expectations. As a company grows, there becomes this disconnect between the top level of leadership and the bottom level uh, in the org of people who are actually doing the work. Part of that disconnect comes from the C-suite at a company getting more and more pressure over time from board members, from shareholders saying, we want this amount of growth to happen. We want this amount of profitability or revenue to be generated. And those senior leaders who are receiving that pressure from outside will then turn around and tell their teams, this thing now needs to get done. And it almost doesn't matter what the actual realistic possibilities are. It only matters what the ask is of the company from the shareholders and from the board members or whoever it is. What then ends up happening is this will trickle on down. A CEO will tell a head of marketing, we need to grow our sales by 100% over the next year. Doesn't really matter whether that's possible. That is simply the ask. The head of marketing has two choices to say, okay, I'll get it done and then try to figure out a way to get as close as possible or say, no, I can't do that and risk getting fired. So head of marketing will then go to their next in line or next in command, maybe a performance marketing director and say, how do we grow our sales by hundred percent over the next year? And that performance marketing leader will say, I'm not sure I can, that doesn't seem possible. Or they'll just do the same thing and say, got it. I'll, I'll figure out a way to do it. If they say, I don't think I can do it, that CMO may go back to the CEO and say, hey, this doesn't seem possible. It's also possible they'll just say, sorry, we got to do it. That's what we've committed to as a company. The problem with all of this is it's not based in the reality of what the business can do. It's based on the asks that people outside the company have or that the CEO has. And when this occurs, people get very quickly frustrated and disengaged. It ultimately leads to burnout. When people don't think it is possible to accomplish what they're being asked to, they feel burnout and they feel a lot of stress. And so instead of delivering against what's actually possible, oftentimes companies will come up way short of that because they've just created so much consternation within the team when setting unrealistic expectations. So a better approach is to, as a leader, 
try to figure out what the company's priorities are first, of course. If the company's priorities are growth versus profitability, that may mean different things for a head of sales. That may mean different things for a marketing team. That may mean different things for a operations team. If the goal is profitability, then instead of saying we need to get to net contribution margin positive by the end of the year, that I don't know if that's possible or not. Instead say, this is our top priority. What is it possible to achieve and have that come from a set of ideas from the bottom up when you involve the lower levels of the company, the more junior folks who are more tied to the actual day-to-day work, who better understand the customer, who better understand the systems, you'll get a lot more information about what can actually be done. So you could set more realistic goals. You will also get a lot more buy-in because people, instead of being dictated to and being told, you need to achieve this impossible metric, they're instead being involved in the solution. And they're being told, we need to improve profitability. We want to see how much we can, and we would love your input on getting there. Now, I think typically people will underestimate how much is actually possible, but I think they're going to be a lot closer to what's possible than whatever finger in the air number a CEO just says needs to happen. Instead of just setting a goal and saying, you need to hit this. If you go to the team and say, we want to figure out how to get to profitability. We want to figure out how to grow the company significantly. And here's why. And then ask for ideas on how to get that done and then make a decision around what is actually possible. You will, as a manager, get a lot more out of your team a lot more engagement, a lot more excitement about the problem, and ultimately a lot more impactful work than simply saying, hey, we need to get here, figure it out. The last mistake that I see managers make very frequently, and this actually might be one of the most frequent ones, is being unclear with strategy. To me, a strategy is defining how you get to the end goal. So an end goal is... 100% growth in new users. Great. That's a target. The strategy is how we actually get there. And maybe that's three pillars. Maybe that's increasing existing user spend by 10%. It's identifying new regions that we haven't tapped into yet. And maybe the other one is uh, developing a new product that caters to a different segment of the market that we haven't historically targeted. Great. Those three pillars are a strategy to ultimately achieve growth in users. What often I see happen is managers or leaders or founders saying, do all the things. And they don't say it in exactly those words, but every day, every week, every quarter, there will be a bunch of things added to the roadmap that weren't there at the beginning of the quarter, when in reality, things should be being taken off the roadmap. No matter how many things you tell a company to do, a company, because it's made up of people, is only capable of doing so many things. There are only so many hours in the day. There are only so many days in the week. And the more you push on people to do things, the less productive they'll get over time. If you are telling your company, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and then because you saw some frustrated customer interaction or 
you saw a metric head slightly the wrong direction, you then add A, B, and C as well, you're not actually making any forward progress. You're just sending the team back and forth amongst a bunch of potentially competing priorities. That to me is being unclear with strategy. You as a manager, your job is to make clear, this is what we want to accomplish. And more importantly, this is what we're not going to focus on. If a team can be given just one or two things to get done, they're going to be a lot more successful at getting those couple things done than the team that is constantly being given new things to work on and is holding seven or eight balls in the air. And I think sometimes leaders have a hard time saying no to things because they feel like they can't drop a ball. But the reality is that by not saying no to anything, they're actually dropping all the balls a little bit and maybe not solving, not pulling any of those balls out by solving that problem. So if you as a manager, I'm just thinking of a company I used to work with that did bike sharing. We were trying to both grow exponentially in terms of the number of markets and the number of bikes we had in those markets. And we were also trying to figure out how to be profitable at the same time. It was a literally impossible task. In order to grow, we had to replicate the way that an existing market worked. The existing markets were not profitable. So every market we opened, we actually made ourselves even less profitable. The problem was, as we opened more markets, coming up with an ideal market operation that was profitable became that much harder because now you weren't trying to change just a few markets operations. You were trying to change twice that many markets operations, which made it even harder to do. And so the idea that the company could both could focus on both of these literally polar opposite priorities was ultimately a bad one. And the company didn't end up achieving either one super effectively. Whereas if the company had said, let's first focus on growth and then on profitability or the other way around, it's very likely that that could have been accomplished. I think the challenge that managers sometimes have is setting the right expectations with board members or their own managers around, hey, we actually are only capable of X and Y and not also Z. That kind of pushback is not easy to do. But the reality is if you don't do that pushback as a manager and set expectations with your senior leaders around, here's what it's possible to do, then you're just pushing those inefficiency problems. You're pushing those overwork problems down on your team who's ultimately not going to deliver the way that you would want them to and who's ultimately going to feel more burnout and stress and ultimately get more disengaged and feel worse about you as a manager than would have been the case had you stood up for them and, and created a clear strategy and said, these are the single one or two things we really want to get done in this quarter. Okay. We're at time. Hopefully you haven't gotten too bored by my presentation on the most frustrating mistakes that managers make. Just talking briefly through them again. One is over prescribing. So giving a solution instead of an ask for a solution. Two overlooking performance issues within the team. Three, ignoring or potentially not inviting feedback at all. 
Four, setting unrealistic expectations for your team that are not possible to be met. And then five, on a similar note, being unclear with your team's strategy, what is going to be worked on and what isn't. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you uh, enjoyed and found it useful. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Management 101. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to subscribe and leave a comment or review. That helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for tuning in to Management 101 and we'll catch you in the next episode.